Good morning. If you have your Bibles, and I hope you do, I invite you to join me in John chapter 1. John chapter 1 is where we're going to be this morning. We're going to be starting in verse 6. If I have not had a chance to meet you, my name is Mike. I'm the student pastor here at Central, and it is a pleasure to be with you this morning. I wasn't able to be here last week, so it feels extra special to be back with my church family today, and also to be able to share the word with you. Uh, This past summer, I had the opportunity to do something that I will never forget. It was meet myself and uh, a group of some of our high school and college students here at the church. We had the chance to travel with Leadership University to London, England where we would travel uh, around the city, see these incredible sites, these incredible locations, while at the same time learning different leadership principles through the lens of world history and church history. And the one thing that stands out to me the most, more than anything else, is we we had an opportunity where we would take a ferry and we crossed the English Channel, where we would then land in Normandy, France, where that evening and then all day the next day we would tour various locations, including, uh, including Normandy, uh, American Cemetery, Point to Hawk, and the most sobering moment for me, Omaha Beach, where over 2,000 American soldiers and allied forces would give their lives storming the beaches of Normandy on one of the most daring military campaigns in history, D-Day. And as I stood on that beach, I was... I was Amazed as I stood there and I watched families have picnics and, and, and young people throwing frisbees and, and reflecting back to the thousands of men who gave their lives, the sacrifice that went into these people being able to enjoy a picnic on a beach. Knowing that just about 80 years ago, that place was anything but what I was witnessing that day. One of my favorite things to do whenever I go to any beach, whatever it may be, is, is I stand at the water's edge with my, feet, with my feet in the water. Now I get to do this, and I'll hold my daughter Carly, and I'll just kind of look out at the water. I'll just look at the horizon. I'll just take in the beauty of God's creation. But on that day, I, I didn't find myself looking out in the ocean. What I found myself doing was standing with my heels to the water's edge, my back to the ocean, as my gaze was focused on the hills that loomed over those beaches. Hills where machine gun fire and mortar rounds would come raining down onto these men who stormed these hills. And as I looked at those hills, I thought to myself, what drives a man to run forward even in the midst of the onslaught that they were experiencing? What pushes a person to forsake all things about themselves and push forward in the midst of hostility. And as I stood there, I began to understand that ultimately what what motivates a person to do this is a profound understanding of the purpose of their mission. At this time, Nazi Germany had taken a stranglehold over much of Europe. And the men who stormed those beaches knew that the fate of the future of that war greatly depended on what happened on that beach that day. You know, it's a profound sense of purpose that drove those men. And as I stood on that beach, and as I stand before you this morning, I am amazed at the power of purpose. The power of purpose. When an individual or a group of people grab hold of a purpose for their life that is greater than themselves, 
That is greater than the, 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 the menial things of today that are here today and gone tomorrow. These, these thing, a purpose that is greater than all of these temporary things, greater than their own personal aspirations. Whenever you see somebody or a group of people grab hold of a purpose like this, man, they just live differently. They just live differently. And sadly, so few people today truly live with this type of a purpose. Something that wakes them up in the morning and, and drives them to get out of bed. What I personally found is that every person desires a purpose like this. Every, per, every person desires to live their life for something greater than themselves. Scripture tells us that God has written eternity on our hearts. Every person desires this greater purpose. This is why the first question that every person who studies philosophy comes to is this, is what is the purpose of life? What's the meaning of this? And, and personally, what's so sad is witnessing so many people go their entire lives never grabbing this purpose, never finding it. And what's so sobering to me is how this mindset of never finding this purpose, not really understanding the purpose of all this, is just as prevalent in the church as it is outside of the church. Is that we have people who, have, who, who, who proudly and boldly profess the name of Jesus, praise the Lord, but because we have so little discipleship and because we've simplified the Christian life to a repeatable prayer and sporadic church attendance, we see that we have people professing Jesus who walk around just waiting to go meet him. No purpose. And that's why when the gunfire of the enemy comes against them, they don't charge the hills, they hide. Maybe you find yourself in this place and perhaps I'm speaking to you this morning. You hear this and this resonates with you. Man, you know you love Jesus, but you're like, man, I don't, what do I do? Now what do I do? I mean, you, you, you resonate with this idea of hungering for a purpose worth giving it all for. I want to live for something like that. You know, when you live long enough, you begin to realize that no amount of money is ever enough money. No number of friendships is ever an, the, the, the right amount of friendships. That, that no amount of praise or adoration you receive is ever going to be enough. And, and because of this, you see, man, all of these things, and they just never seem to fully satisfy. And you begin to ask yourself, man, there's got to be something greater than just this. Amen. Ask yourself, is your life just so you can accumulate enough money? that you will spend. So as we continue to look into the Gospel of John this morning, I want you to see that there is a greater purpose. There is a greater purpose. There is a mission for us as believers that is worth pushing our chips towards the center and saying, I'm all in. There is a greater purpose. It's something that when you grab hold of this purpose, you can lay your head on your pillow at the end of every day knowing, I live today for a reason. I can have that joy of knowing that. What John's going to show us this morning is this. Because Jesus had a mission, we have a mission. Because Jesus had a mission, we have a mission. If you have your Bibles, John chapter 1, I invite you to stand with me as we read from God's word this morning. In the gospel according to John chapter 1, verse 6. Says this, there was a man 
sent from God, whose name was John. He came as a witness to bear witness about the light, that all might believe through him. He was not the light, but came to bear witness about the light. The true light, which gives light to everyone, was coming into the world. He was in the world, and the world was made through him. Yet the world did not know him. He came to his own, and his own people did not receive him. But to all who did receive him, who believed in his name, he gave the right to become children of God, who were born not of blood, nor of the will of man, nor of, the, uh, nor of flesh, nor of the will of man, but of God. And the word became flesh and dwelt among us, and we have seen his glory, glory as the only Son from the Father, full of grace and truth. John bore witness about him and cried out, This was he of whom I have said, He who comes after me ranks before me, because he was after me. For from, the fullness, for from his fullness we have all received grace upon grace. For the law was given through Moses. Grace and truth came through Jesus Christ. No one has ever seen God, the only God, who is at the Father's side. He has made him known. If you would pray with me, Father, we thank you for your word. God, we know your word says that it will accomplish that which you have set for it to accomplish. So, Father, we ask that your word will accomplish your will in our hearts and in our lives this morning. We thank you, we praise you, in the name of your son, Jesus. Amen. You can go ahead and grab a seat. So we got a lot to get into. There's a lot of verses here. So the first thing we're going to see is this. We talk about it because Jesus had a mission, we have a mission. So the first thing is this. Our mission directed. Our mission directed. Up to this point, the Gospel of John has had a pretty consistent theme. Right? Last week, we started... We started a new series, Behold the Lamb, as we're really going to be going verse by verse through the Gospel of John. And in those first five verses, there's a consistent theme. We see, G, we see John, we see, or sorry, we see God, the Word, light, life. Really, the whole focus of these first five verses, we, Ethan, Pastor Ethan walked us through these last week, where we saw that Jesus is eternal, he is creator, he is savior, and we're only five verses in, but it's very obvious what John's focus is in this book. It is to point to the divinity of Jesus. That is the whole focus. And the beauty of the Gospel of John is that he actually tells us this in chapter 20, where he says that these things are written so that you may believe that Jesus is the Christ, the Son of God, and that by believing you may have life in his name. Not very often does the author give you the reason why he wrote the book. But we have that in this case. So because of that, everything we read in John's account, we should read understanding it is meant for me to understand that Jesus is God. Which, so it shouldn't be a surprise in the first five verses that this is what we see. This emphasis that Jesus is God. But that is also what makes verse 6 su such a drastic shift. Think about Jesus is God, Jesus is God, Jesus is God. Verse six, there was a man. There's a shift. It's five verses of focusing our eyes up, and then verse six, there was a man. Now we're down. Why would he do this? What's the significance of this? There was a man, meaning a human being. Not a God, not an angel, not a seraph, but a man. Because for five verses, we see the creator of all things. He is light, he is life. This light gives life to all men, and, and, and the darkness has not overcome it. So the natural assumption is that this light and this life that is going to spread is simply going to spread by his sovereign power and by his brightness. That's how it's going to spread. Right? The light shines in the darkness, and the darkness has not overcome it. So naturally, we think that Jesus is going to shine his light, spread life to all mankind, simply by virtue of who he is. 
But John understands that that is not the case. It's not how God works. Which is why he then introduces there was a man. I want you to know this, that God's plan and God's will is that this word and this light and this life would spread not through angels and seraphs, not through the stars in the sky, but by ordinary men and women. That is God's plan for redemption, is that ordinary people would take this good news. If you've been in church for any decent amount of time, you've at least probably heard of John the Baptist. Mind you, John the Baptist is not the one writing this account. It's a different John, so it's probably a little bit confusing. But John the Baptist, he's well-known figure in church. In church. And, and one thing that, if you know this, you know that there's really nothing spectacular about John. He never, we have no account of him ever performing any miracles. He wasn't divine. He was simply a man that preached Jesus and baptized people. That's it. In fact, most of the attention given to him in this passage is meant to emphasize who he is not rather than who he is. And with this in mind, we, we see some things about John and his mission that help us to understand ours. Because ultimately, our mission is very similar to his, that we're called to preach Jesus and point people to him. That is the mission. Spoiler alert. That's the purpose. You want that purpose worth waking up every day and putting your head on your pillow at night knowing that you live today for a reason? That's what it is. I have breath in my lungs to point people to the reality that there is a God in heaven who came in in, in his son, Jesus Christ, lived a perfect life, died the death that we deserve, rose again three days later, and ascended to the Father. And because of that, I can be made right with him. That is the purpose of my life, to make that message known. So we see a few things in this passage. One, we see that we are sent by God. There was a man sent from God. Now, this is important because we need to know that John's mission was not of his own choosing. John didn't wake up one day and say, you know what? I know what I'm going to do. I'm going to move out into the desert and dress like a crazy man and preach Jesus and baptize. No, no. This language, this, this, this mission was given to him. He was sent by God. This word sent in the original language, it gives us this understanding that John received the sending. He received the sending. He didn't come up with this mission for his life. It was given to him, and it wasn't given to him by another man. It was given to him by the King of kings, the Lord of lords, the God of the universe. And you and I need to understand something this morning, that our mission as believers is not something that the pastor came up with in his office one day. It's not something that we decide, here's what I want to do. No, no, no. Our mission has been given to us by God himself. Matthew 28. Go therefore. Make disciples of all the nations, baptizing them in the name of the Father, the Son, and the Holy Spirit, teaching them to obey all that I have commanded you. And behold, I am with you even to the end of the age. Does that resonate with you? That we're sent. We've been sent. And the sad truth is that so many people have taken the Great Commission and we've turned it into the Great Suggestion. If you have time, I know you're busy, but try and, you know, if you have a chance, if not, it's okay, try your best to point someone to Jesus before you die. That's 
No, we're sent. This idea of being sent is, is funny to me. I, um, it's, it's very common for me to be on my way home from work or something like that. My wife, Kayla, give me a call and say, hey, if you get a chance, could you run to the grocery store? And, and she gives me uh, a list of things that she needs. You know, usually it's something for our daughter Carly, or usually it's maybe something for dinner that night or whatever it may be. But make no mistake, she's very specific <laughs> in what she has sent me to the grocery store to get. And there's somewhat of an inside joke between the two of us where, and I think I get this from my mom, because it was an inside joke amongst us siblings when my mom would go, but now I find myself doing the same thing, that whenever I go into a grocery store, I tend to always come out with more than I went in for, right? right I go in, and usually it's like, you know, soda, which is my vice in life, um, or it's maybe some, some snacks, some chips, or whatever it may be. But I always tend to come out with something. And now when I come home, Kayla will ask me, so what else did you get? Right? But make no mistake. The entire time I am in that store, I know I'm in there for one reason. To get what my wife told me to get. And if I leave this place without it, one, I will be in trouble. But two, I will have wasted my time. Because all of the extra things that I gathered don't matter if I leave without the reason I was sent. And know this, that there is a big difference between me walking around a grocery store having been sent by my wife and me walking around a grocery store just shopping around. So let me ask you a question. Does your life reflect that you have been sent into this world by God? Or does it just look like you're shopping around? Not only are we sent, but we see that we are witnesses. Speaking of John the Baptist, he came as a witness to bear witness about the light. This word witness is very significant in John's gospel. The verb to bear witness shows up in the gospel of Matthew once, shows up in the gospel according to Mark zero times, Luke twice, and the gospel of John 33 times. So what does he mean? What does he mean that we are to bear witness, that we are witnesses? To bear witness is to simply give a testimony based on firsthand experience. That's what it means. To, bear, to, to give a testimony based on firsthand experience. I want you to know this, that the testimony of the Christian is not about what you have read. It's not about what you have, you know, what you make up on your own. It's about what you have experienced God do for you personally, firsthand. It is what we have personally experienced firsthand in our lives. One of the reasons that so many people are hesitant to take up this mission to make disciples, to point people to Jesus. One of the reasons we're very hesitant to do this is oftentimes, I'll be honest, is because we feel ill-equipped. Or we feel like we don't know enough. Or we feel like we're not, we're, we're not, we're not good enough at speaking. We're not well-spoken. Or, or perhaps we're afraid they're going to ask us a question and we don't know the answer to. But what was John called to do? Simply testify to what he's experienced firsthand. Likewise, you and I are simply called to testify of what Jesus has done for us. And tell people he can do the same for them. If you experience the saving grace of Jesus on your behalf, your job is simple. Tell people about it. 
No, this is not the knowledge of the Christian that qualifies them to make disciples. It's not the skill set of the Christian that qualifies them to make disciples. It's not the, you know, it's not any of these things that we like to put value in. You know what qualifies someone to make disciples? The salvation that they have. If you've been saved by the blood of Jesus and filled with the Holy Spirit of God, you are a witness to his goodness. You're a witness to his goodness. Think back to Peter and John. When they're arrested in the book of Acts, they're arrested for preaching the name of Jesus. And before they're sent away, they are threatened. Do not do this anymore. Acts chapter 4, verses 19 through 20. What did they say in response? Peter and John answered them, Whether it is right in the sight of God to listen to you rather than to God, you must judge. For we cannot but speak of what we have seen and heard. That's it. There's a beautiful simplicity to our mission as believers. We, we have a tendency to greatly overcomplicate it. Don't be overwhelmed by the mission. It's very easy. We, we, we look out and watch the news or whatever and, and, and think, man, like, it's such a big world, Lord. There's so many people that need you. I, I can't change the world. But here's what I want you to understand. Maybe it made, it's difficult to change the whole world. But I want you to know that you can change the world of one person. Start there. Start there. Don't be overwhelmed. Simply speak of what you have seen and heard God do in your life. And let God do the rest. So first thing we see is our mission directed. Our second thing is this, our mission defined. Now we've seen that we've been given a mission, that we've been given a mission. But now let's look a little bit closer about what this mission entails. What is this mission? How is it defined? How should we do this? How should we fulfill the mission of testifying of who God is and what he has done? Well, let's look at verse 8. It's very important that we point out, when we're speaking about John, it says this. He was not the light, but came to bear witness about the light. First thing you need to know about when it comes to fulfilling the mission of making disciples is this. Our job is to point people to Jesus, not to ourselves. John was not the light. He came to bear witness about the light. The aim of the Christian life is to make much of Jesus and not yourself. This same John the Baptist later in John 3 verse 30 will say this. He must become greater. I must become less. Other translations say this. He must increase and I must decrease. One of the mistakes we often make when it comes to pointing people to Jesus is and we try to testify of how God has worked in our life is that we can oftentimes point people back to ourselves rather than Jesus. Understand that when you are sharing Jesus with people, Jesus is the hero of your story. Jesus is the hero of your story. Jesus is the main character. Jesus is the one that it is all about. Likewise, when you're sharing Jesus with others and what he can do for them, make sure that you emphasize, make very, very clear that Jesus is the hero of their story too. Because if we're not careful, what we do is we present Jesus and we say, now to get to Jesus, you do this, you do this, you do this, you do this, you do this. And what happens is that when they feel like they've gotten to him, who's gotten them there? They have. And they are the hero of their story. Jesus is a nice accessory, but he, they're the hero. No, 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 no. Jesus is the hero. Jesus is the true light. This is why this is so important, because in the next verse it says this, that Jesus is the true light. 
And when we point to people to anything other than Jesus, we are pointing them to a false light, which is ultimately still darkness. So first thing we see about our mission is that it's all about Jesus and not about us. But secondly, we know that it's not going to be easy. I want you to read these verses 10 and 11 with me. Now, there's a tendency for us, whenever you've been in church for a decent amount of time, or you've read verses a lot, that you can almost, the significance of what's being said can almost be missed. So let's not miss the weight of what we're about to read in these two verses. He was in the world, and the world was made through him, yet the world did not know him. He came to his own, and his own people did not receive him. Let's just take a moment to grasp that. Jesus, fully God, has come into the world that he has created. Remember, we established this last week, that Jesus is creator, and he has stepped into this world that he has created. Everyone in this room, and within the sound of my voice, is made in the image of God. And when we encounter God, made by him, uh, when we encounter him, we don't even recognize him. We don't know him. How is this possible? How is this possible for God to not be known by the very ones that he has created in his image? That, that as David says in the psalm, you knit me together in my mother's womb. And then we encounter God and we don't even recognize the hand that knit us. How is this possible? It's because the world that was once created perfect is now fallen and broken. And because of our sin, we have been robbed of our spiritual sight and our spiritual life. Because of our sin, we've become spiritually blind and spiritually dead. One of my favorite authors calls it spiritual amnesia. Now, this illustration is not unique to me, but I just think it so perfectly describes what we've just read in verses 10 and 11. He writes this, A man wakes up in the hospital only to discover that he has been in a coma for about a week. He does not know how he got there or why he is there. He does not know where he is. In fact, he cannot even remember his name. He is told that over a week ago, he encountered muggers who beat him severely, robbing him of everything, including his identity. Anything to tell who he was or why he was in the city was stripped from him. The doctors diagnosed him with amnesia. It is a real problem because the man who has no memory of what happened to him has lost all perspective of his life, not even knowing his own name making him vulnerable to people that he does not know. You see, this identity crisis, this spiritual amnesia, is where all people are apart from Jesus. Totally lost. Totally broken. With no hope. No understanding why they're here. No understanding where they're even going. Not even knowing who they are. Simply grasping at anything to tell them who they are and why they're here. Look at our world today. Look what people find their value and identity in. We're living in a day and age right now where people don't even know their identities. In a literal sense. And this is not a joke. Why? Because we have been stripped of everything that gives us purpose and meaning. Because of our sin. We've been beaten and bruised because of our sinfulness. We've lost that which we were made for, and we are faced with the reality of God. And when we are faced with him, we don't even know who he is. 
It's like that heartbreaking moment when a child walks in and their parent doesn't recognize their face. So where do we come in? What, what is the mission of the believer? What do I have to do with this? Well, we tell our neighbors what they have seemingly forgotten, who they are, why they're here, how they can be restored to what their purpose is, what happened to them in the first place. We tell them how Jesus is the light that gives life to them that was robbed from them by their sin. We show how Jesus is the hero of their story and how to be restored to a right relationship with him. And not only does Jesus give us a new purpose, but he gives us an identity. No longer are we rebels and slaves to our sin, but look at verse 12. We are now children of God. Verse 12, but to all who did receive him, who believed in his name, he gave the right to become children of God. I want you to notice the posture of the person being saved in this instance. Received, believed, given the right to. Now focus in on that word receive. It's important because we need to know that this eternal life, this right standing before God is not something that we take or we earn or we achieve. It is something that we receive or given. See, when we believe in Jesus, we do not need to jump through hoops to earn something. Now, scripture tells us that this life is received by a gracious and generous father who desires to give good gifts. Charles Spurgeon put it this way, faith is described as receiving Jesus. It is the empty cup placed under the flowing stream, the penniless hand held out for heavenly alms. Imagine the beaten and the bruised rebel has become the accepted and the loved child. This is the heart of our God. This is the heart of his mission. And if we call ourselves Christians, this should be the heart that we have, and this should be the heart of our mission, to know that our God is a saving God who desires to give the gift of eternal life to his creation. We need to know that God's not hiding from us. He desires a relationship with us. He desires to be known by you. Do you believe that? When we talk about our mission, we need to understand what is success? What role do we play in all of this? Verse 13, these children of God who are born not of blood, nor of the will of the flesh, nor of the will of man, but of God. Now, I'm not going to steal thunder from John chapter 3, but when we get to John chapter 3, it's going to be a very important point. This new birth Notice that it's not something that is coerced or achieved. It's not something that is under the will of man or of smooth speech or convincing argument. This new birth comes strictly as a will, out of the will of God and the moving of his Holy Spirit. Meaning this, you and I, in our attempts to make Jesus known, cannot save anybody. We can't. That is a movement of God and his Holy Spirit. We can't save anyone. We saw this last week that Jesus is the Savior. God does the work of changing a person's heart. We simply be faithful to partake in the process. I've given this illustration before, but it's been a long time, so hopefully you've forgotten. <laughs> my sister and my brother-in-law, they, they have three kids and two twin boys. Now, I have observed these two twin boys as rather reckless. And a few years ago, for Christmas, they got a, a swing set. So to call it a swing set would be an understatement. It is an impressive work of architecture. But 
I remember when they got this, and I remember seeing pictures and videos of my brother-in-law sitting in the backyard with just pieces everywhere. All very organized, by the way. That's just the way he is. And he's looking at it. And I remember seeing videos of his sons, Cameron and Carson, they wanting to help. So they're grabbing stuff, bring it to him. He's like, oh, thank you so much. But put that back because I don't want to lose it. Because the last thing you want is this giant thing that your kids are playing on and you have four or five screws left over, right? You don't want that. So what do we do? How, how does he, so, but, but here's the thing that's so amazing is that they partook in what he was doing. And every time I go to that house, every time I play on that thing with those kids, they never fail to tell me, you know, we built this. Carson will tell me, hey, me and Cameron built this. And Cameron will say, yeah, me and Carson built this. And here's the thing. I know what really happened. But I'm like, that's cool, man. Let me ask you a question. Did my brother, did he need them? No. Could he have done it quicker without them? Most likely, yes. But understand this. There is something special. When a father can look into the face of his kids and see the joy that comes over them when they get to take part in dad's work. It's not because so much that he loved the swing set. It's because he loved his kids. And understand this. Does God need you? No. Could God do it without you or without me? Absolutely he can. But there is a smile that comes on the heart of our God when his children take seriously seeing their father's wants accomplished in their father's world. Why are we invited? If God can do it without us, why are we joining in on this? Because God loves you. And there's nothing more joyful. I can, I promise you, there is nothing more joyful than leading someone to Jesus. And as much as you're, you're doing in, for that person in that moment, what God is doing for you is without explanation. So because we see this, because it is God who does this work and we just get to partake in the process, how do we know if we're successful? Is it based on the results? Well, it can't be because God is the one who takes care of the results. So how do you know if you're successful? Here's how you know. Are you faithful? Don't focus on being fruitful as much. Are you faithful? I've given this example a million times to our students. I shared it last week at the church, the church I got to speak at. There's two callings in the Christian life. There's the calling of Peter, where Jesus says, Peter, follow me. And Peter follows Jesus. And, and on the day of Pentecost, Peter preaches, and 3,000 people get saved. I'll tell you, I have never preached, and 3,000 people got saved. Man, that's a calling I want. Then there's the calling of Isaiah. You read Isaiah chapter 6, when Israel is in rebellion. And God says, Whom shall I go? Who shall go? Who shall I send? Who shall go for us? And Isaiah, after seeing this vision of the throne room of God, says, Here I am, Lord, send me. And what's the rest of the chapter? God telling him how no one will listen. You will not see much fruit come of this at all. And Isaiah asks, how long, Lord? And God says, until there's no one left. How can you have the calling of Peter? And how can the calling of Isaiah? And how can they both be joyful? Because there's nothing more discouraging when you share Jesus with people and they reject it. 
How can you find joy in either circumstance? Because your joy is in the fact that you are faithful with what God gave you to do. Well, no matter the response, I preach every Tuesday to high school and middle school students, and I want you to know that while I love it when they make decisions to follow Jesus, I don't, my joy is found in, was I faithful to tell them what I was told to tell them? And if so, praise the Lord. Our job is to be faithful. And I want you to know that the only way that you can fail in this mission that God has given you is to be silent. That's how you fail. If you're faithful to share it, then you have succeeded. And you leave the results to God. Our last thing we see is this, our mission realized. Now there's a lot in these last few verses. We're not gonna be able to get into everything, but I want us to kind of just skip ahead to verse 18. It says, no one has ever seen God, the only God, who is at the Father's side. He, meaning Jesus, has made him known. Verse 18 is a summary statement of what we have seen. The ultimate is this, that Jesus has made the Father known. Jesus has taken that, the one who has been, who is only known in part, and through stepping into our world, has made him known fully. Able to be known fully. John, that's why when Jesus prays the high priestly prayer in John 17, where he goes, I've accomplished the work that you've given me to do. Verse, uh, verse six says this, I have manifested your name to the people whom you gave me out of the world. Jesus says, I have made you known. The next chapter, Jesus standing before Pilate says this, you say that I am a king. For this purpose I was born. For this purpose I've come into the world to bear witness to the truth. What is the truth that he's speaking about within the context of pulling scriptures and understanding this? The truth is who God is. Jesus stepped into this world to testify who the Father is, to make the Father known. John 14, 6, Jesus says, I am the way, the truth, and the life. No one comes to the Father except through me. Why? Because it is only through Jesus that the Father is known. You cannot get to the Father apart from Jesus. So if it Jesus makes the Father known, who makes Jesus known? It's the Holy Spirit through the witness of people who have believed in Jesus. Now let's work backwards. How does he do this? Verse 17, for the law was given through Moses. Grace and truth came through Jesus Christ. He did this by giving us what we needed. We already had the law. And the sad reality is this, is that none of us can keep it. When all we have is the law of who God is and what we need to do to be in right relationship with him, apart from grace and apart from Jesus, and we see, man, we fall short. Romans 3, 23 says, all have sinned and fallen short of the glory of God. And because of that, we stand condemned. And we think that the solution is, well, let's add more law. But that's not what happens. That's what, the, that's what the early Jews tried to do. They added all of these laws. But that's not what they needed. That's not what we need. Understand this. If you're in this room and you do not have Jesus, you don't need more law. You need grace. You need grace. And it's this combination of grace and truth, law and mercy, where we gain a full understanding of who our God is. That at the cross, God's justice for sin and his mercy over sinners meet. They meet. And how did he do this? How did he make this grace known? Verse 14. The word, going back to those first five verses, became flesh and dwelt among us. 
And we have seen his glory, glory as the only son. Man, you see that. That Jesus, the holy, eternal one, the one that angels stand before and, and, and with wings cover their eyes and say, holy, holy, holy is the Lord. This Jesus stepped out of glory and stepped into, and stepped into your history, my history, stepped into the world he created, was rejected, lived a perfect life. And because of this, he took the sins that you and I had. He took the punishment for our sins upon himself on the cross. And in doing so, made known to us just how much the Father loves us. And did what no amount of law could ever do, gave us grace. And if you're in this room, you're like, man, I, I want to fulfill this mission that, that God's got. I want to live this, but, but I have all these things in my past. I've, I've made mistakes. I've done these decisions. Understand this. Look to the cross. You're qualified for the mission because of what Jesus did for you on that cross. I'll kind of close with what I opened with. On that day that we stood on Omaha Beach, we were given vials where we could scoop sand from that beach into this vial. And I got to take it home. And every day I leave this vial on my desk so that when I sit at my desk, I see that vial of sand. And I'm reminded of the power of purpose. I'm reminded that it was because of men driven by a purpose that they were willing to go all in. And I want to ask myself, I have a greater purpose than they did Am I willing to go all in? I mean, you may not have a vial of sand, but you have something far more powerful and you have the image of Jesus on the cross and not just on the cross. You have the image of Jesus walking out of the grave three days later and you have the Holy Spirit within you. And if that's not enough motivation for you, I don't know what to say. And if you're in this place this morning and you've not placed your faith in Jesus, understand this, it doesn't matter how much of a mission you try to live for. If you don't know Jesus, it doesn't matter. So do not leave this place without knowing him. You need to talk to someone. There's next step banners. There's people up front to pray after the service. Don't leave this place unsure. Leave this place with a mission and a purpose. Father, I thank you for your word. I thank you for this time you've given us. And God, I pray. That we leave this place bringing you all the honor and all the glory. God, we wouldn't leave this place focused on ourselves. We'd leave this place focused on Jesus and making him known. And God, I thank you that because of what was done for us on the cross and what was done for us with him walking out of that grave three days later, Father, we could stand before you confident that no matter what we have done in our past, that, Father, you died for that and we stand before you righteous. God, I thank you, and I praise you. In the name of your son, Jesus, amen.